Isaiah 60, beginning at verse 1. Rise, shine, for your light has come. and The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Shall we pray? Our dear God and Father, we thank you, and we bless you once again. For your mercies and your loving kindnesses that you have poured out upon us. Grace that is so undeserved. And yet we are here before you tonight. Just thankful, Lord God, for that love and mercy. And tonight, Lord, we call upon your Holy Spirit. We we pray that you will pour out your Spirit upon us. For wisdom and understanding. We desire, Lord, to know and grow in your word. And, and we are so blessed to, to have this opportunity. Oh, that more would take it. For we look at the days in which we live and then the day that is approaching and we realize, Lord, that everything that you have said in your word about that which is to come is coming to pass. And our desire, Lord, is that none would be left behind, but would come to know the truth, the mercy, the grace, the holiness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray tonight. Amen and amen. It has been said that prophecy is the mold into which history is poured. I love that statement. Prophecy is the mold into which history is poured. That is a tremendous statement in light of this last section of the book of Isaiah. The third and the final section or division of the book of Isaiah presents the Redeemer, the suffering Messiah on the cross. Following that, we saw the progress and and development, not of the government of God as, as in the first part of the prophecy way back when, but of the grace of God. We saw last time how sin breaks off our fellowship and communion with God, and because man is hopeless by himself, God stepped in and sent a Redeemer to take care of man's sin. At the end of the last chapter, we're, we were told that the Redeemer will come to Zion. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 59. It says, The Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, for from this time and forevermore. And so from that we get the context of what we find coming into chapter 60. And as we enter into chapter 60, we see that He has come. 
Now this is what is exciting about the phrase I mentioned earlier. That prophecy is the mold into which history is poured. Because there is in the Hebrew language something that is called the prophetic tense. Now we, we know that in grammar we have present tense, past tense, future tense, and a bunch of other tenses. Makes us somewhat tense when we go to you know, language class or grammar, you know, or when we were in, in those classes back in school. But there is in the Hebrew language a prophetic tense. And that is when a prophet goes beyond the event and looks back as if it were history. The prophet, you know, in other words, the Lord takes this prophet to see things as if it already has come to pass. If you've been noticing throughout our study of, uh, of the book of Isaiah, the prophet many times speaks of future things as having already taken place. So consider what we see at the onset of our text here. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Now that prophetic tense is right here. If God says a thing is going to happen, that means... He's on the other side of it, as far as time is concerned, from our standpoint. You see, from our standpoint, we live within this particular time continuum that we have on this earth. But God, being uh, eternal, lives beyond that time continuum. But, of course, He lives with, it, with us in it as well. But He lives beyond it. He, he, is, he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. We know this from Scripture. God is eternal. But if God says a thing is going to happen, that means He's on the other side of it already. For God, it's the same as having taken place. And at the risk of sounding like a movie cliche, Isaiah was just looking back to the future. It must be an old movie now. <laughs> really old. <laughs> so he's looking back toward the future, toward the full manifestation of the millennium. The thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. We know it hasn't happened yet. We know we're not living in it. There, you know, there are some people who think that we are, that we've already passed that millennium. There are some people that think we're living in the millennium. There's no way if you look at the things that it says about the millennium and the character of that thousand year reign of Christ. It is still yet to come. But this looking back is also showing Isaiah and us that in Zion shall be his throne. In Zion shall be the throne of Messiah. And he says it as if it has already happened. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Now, who is he speaking to? Let's make that very clear. We've just remembered the, uh, the, the, the context. Zion. Your Redeemer has come to Zion. Is coming to Zion. Zion is... Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of Israel. So he's speaking to the children of Israel. He's speaking to the people of Israel. And he's speaking in particular to Jer uh, Jerusalem. So because of the Lord's redeeming work, that light or blessing, because light from God is a blessing. So that light will fall on Israel. They hadn't been blessed and, and, and for, as a nation, they haven't been blessed all that much in, 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 as far as time is concerned. When you go back and see how they had been scattered after uh, the Jews had been scattered after uh, uh, Rome had uh, destroyed uh, 
Jerusalem as it were. And then, of course, just wandering in, in all kinds of nations here and there. Now they're gathering back. That's the beginning. The very fact that there is an Israel today, the very fact that there are people in, that there are Jews in Israel today, is a fulfillment of prophecy and a continual fulfilling of prophecy. So when people say, you know, well, is God's word true? This is proof that it is. Because that was prophesied thousands of years before it would even happen. When we arrived at the, at the 19th century, uh, 20th century, uh, there were still some people who, who thought, you know, there is no real Israel any longer. Where is Israel? Well, it must mean then that there is some kind of replacing, uh, you know, from the standpoint of a symbolism, maybe Israel now is the church. But that's not the case. There is a distinction in Scripture between the church and Israel. And it's a major distinction. So, the, the point of, the, of all things is that now the light of and blessing of God and of Christ is, falling, is going to fall on Israel, who in turn will shine forth as a spiritual light to the nations, revealing God's word and God's glory to them. And in doing so, Israel will be instrumental in removing the darkness that pervades the world. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. A wonderful Christmas message. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. A near fulfillment when Christ came. A future fulfillment when Isaiah 60, verse 1 is, is fulfilled itself. The light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Isaiah 29, verse 18. It says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. No longer will there be darkness. Light will permeate. Acts chapter 26. Paul, in giving uh, his testimony, uh, in verses 17 and 18, he says, you know, he's speaking of what Jesus is speaking to him about on the road to Damascus. And he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I'll stop there just for a moment because there's something that is so rich in what... Jesus said to Paul that should affect each and every one of our lives and the lives of those that we know are without Christ or that we know are far from God today. And think about what it says, that if God has called Paul to open eyes in order to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, folks, that's what God has called us to not that we ourselves and in and of ourselves will open eyes, but we have the light because Jesus says you're the light of the world. You who are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have that light. You can open the eyes because you have the truth of God in you and with you. And this is an interesting. We all know people who are living today in darkness rather than light, and we want them to come to that light. 
We know people who are being directed by the power of Satan rather than by the power of God. We know they need to come to Christ. We have those who need the forgiveness of sins and they go on and on thinking and carrying the burdens of guilt on their lives as if nobody can do it, but Jesus already did it on the cross. We have that knowledge. We have that truth. It affected us. We cannot be sitting in this room today in the knowledge of Christ and in the blessings of salvation without realizing that there are those who need what we have and what changed our lives. And so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We can't rest in our inheritance. We can rest in the salvation of Christ, but we can't rest in our inheritance and in the knowledge of it. We can be about our Father's business with the rest that He's given us, the strength that He's given us, the wisdom that He's given us, the power that He's given us, not in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit. Or we could just stay there all night. But we've got to move on. Romans 2, verse 19. Notice what Paul says there. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Now listen, Paul is speaking here to the Jewish uh, believers in Rome. And he says that you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. So there's that theme of darkness going on and on and the light that can permeate it and and dispel it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. There's a lot of scripture I was giving you here, but there's an important tie-in in all of this. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us or transmitted us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He has delivered us from darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And the kingdom of the Son of His love is the kingdom of light. No darkness at all. Lastly, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Well, not lastly, but lastly here in this list. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim, for there it is right there, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't worry about the sounds upstairs. There's a bowling alley up there and I just wanted you to know that. Just kidding. Now the glory of the Lord... The glory of the Lord. Think about that phrase for just a moment. The glory of the Lord is no earthly light. The glory of the Lord is no earthly light. It is light that emanates from the Lord's glory itself. Seen on Jesus in the, in the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 2. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. That's not light from the earth. That's not light from any man-made thing. That's the light of the glory of God. And with all this in mind that we've just read, and even this, those upon whom the light has shined, those upon whom the light has shined, have a service to put forth. We have a commission. We have a service to put forth, as it were. First of all, if we, we want to point to Israel because this is directed toward Israel. They are to arise and shine. They are to arise and shine. 
Have you ever felt on, uh, on any given morning that you have gotten up but you haven't arisen? You know what I mean then, right? Arise, shine, awake. We are all called to respond to the light of the glory of Christ. Israel is going to be called to respond to the light of the glory of Christ. And so how best should we respond to the glory of God and to the glory of Christ? Well, think about this from from this standpoint. Light is for rising up and shining. Now, this is with all due respect to those of you that have to work, you know, graveyard shifts. So, light is primarily for shining, uh, for rising up and shining. Darkness is for gloom, it is for gloominess, it is, is for sleep. Not a bad thing sometimes, but it's not a good thing either because a lot of things happen in darkness. A lot of bad things. I think of First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4-8 through 8, where Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness. is that a wonderful statement? I mean, the sun could be up, the sun could be down, the moon could be up, the moon could be down, the the stars could be showing, and and there's no sun out, but we're not in darkness. It doesn't matter about the condition of the outdoors, it's the condition of the heart. He says, you are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Now, he's really driving this point home. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have your physical sleep. It just means that we need to spiritually be awake all the time. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Didn't we cover this last time? We were talking about the the, the armor of God and and, and how we saw some of those uh, pieces of armor in the book of Isaiah 59. And I still, to this day, this is my own theory, so, you know, do with it as you will. But I believe that when Paul was writing the letter to the Thessalonian church, he had to have had some scrolls of Isaiah in front of him a lot. When he talks about, in chapter 4, about, you know, the, the rapture of the church... There's Isaiah 26 to look at. When he talks about the breastplate of righteousness and all, we have Isaiah 59. When he talks about light and darkness and night and day, we have Isaiah 60. Scrolls. So that's my opinion. To do with it as you will. But, you know, Paul had scrolls with him from time to time. Even toward the end of his life, he asked Timothy to come and bring him even other books and other scrolls. Important to see how important the Word of God is. They're important. If it was important to the apostles, it needs to be important to us. To reference and cross-reference what God is saying to us. Okay, so consider the darkness mentioned in verse 2. As that which the world will come out of at the end of the tribulation period. Notice verses 2 and 3. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. I have a question for you. And this isn't spiritual. How many of you are warm in here? Am I the only one? Is there a way we can, you know, kind of cool off the, the joint? 
A little bit. I'm dying here. <laughs> it's a little warm. Okay. Anyway, verse 2. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. Notice this darkness here, okay? And deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, we live today in the midst of some of this darkness. I may, I may lift my voice up a little bit. That's not because I'm mad at you. I just want you to hear me. All right. We live in the midst today of some of this darkness. Would you not agree that we live in a dark world, a dark uh, uh, society, a, a dark, you know, uh, worldview. I mean, all around us. It's all around us. Can't escape it. Right now, anyway. I mean, some people would like to believe that it couldn't get any worse than it is. But as so many have been quoted, you ain't seen nothing yet. I remember that we have yet to arrive at the tribulation period, though, though we may be very close. It's going to get worse than it is even now. And as believers who trust in the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's Word, this passage is an overwhelming assurance that biblical prophecy is 100% accurate. The Lord is speaking to Israel in general and Jerusalem in particular in terms of blessing them with His glory. And there is no mistaking that the deep darkness signifies that period before the millennial kingdom is established at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Think about this statement in Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 16. It says, Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains, and while you are looking for light, He turns it into the shadow of death, and it makes it dense darkness. I mean, it, you think it's dark now, it's going to get darker. I think I, I may have used this example before, but when I was in college, I, I, I had a class. It was an interesting class. It was really a, a physics of sound class, but... Uh, for some reason, the professor took us into a chamber there at the university that, that uh, was actually designed to block out any kind of light whatsoever. No little pinprick holes here or there. Pinprick holes in a colorless sky. Let insipid colors of light pass by. Remember the Moody Blues? I don't know why that came into my mind. But anyway, so you got this, you, you have this, this chamber where there is no light. I mean, there's zero light. And I tell you what. It was spooky. It was spooky. It was, it was in, underneath a hill over by a, a kid field, if you know kid field of UTEP there. And it was designed, you know, to show no light. And I mean, it got just darker. And I couldn't believe that you could actually get so dark that you were afraid of what may or may not have been around you. And we think it's dark now. But I want to read something from Revelation 16 verse 10. Because in Revelation 16, verse 10, in, in this particular chapter, we are being given the, the judgments, the bold judgments of God. Now remember what Jeremiah said, Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness. And in Revelation 16, 10, it says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Incredible. So you understand then 
This darkness here is, 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 is showing us, I mean, it's, it's, it's showing us what it's going to be like right before that glory appears. The glory of the Lord. And I tell you what, when that door was open and we got out of that, uh, that chamber, man, thank you, Lord, that there was light. So, what is most significant and, and, and what is the most significant thing for us to take with us here tonight is verse 3. Because it says, The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now when the Lord does lift up His glorious light over Israel, the Gentile nations shall see it. And by the way, these will be the nations, the kind of the remnant nations, the uh, believing nations as it were, the ones who will see the light and respond to the light. There will be some that may not. But so the Gentile nations shall see it. They'll come directly to its radiance. While the kings of these nations will also be attracted to the brightness of Israel's rising. The brightness of this land or this nation as it were. You know that has been actually a scourge to many nations. But they will be attracted to the brightness of Israel's rising. Now this passage cannot be spiritualized. We cannot spiritualize this passage as those who hold to what is called replacement theology. Uh, as they always hold, you know, they, they have to spiritualize to have their view. Now, what is replacement theology? I was talking a little bit about it earlier. But I didn't identify it. They say that the Gentiles, specifically in this passage, the Gentiles are coming to Christ and His church today. Today. That's how they spiritualize this passage. Because in replacement theology, you are saying that Israel is no longer the beneficiary of God's blessings. Now the church is. So the church has replaced Israel in all the blessings that God wants to give to His people. So Israel, to them, is no longer God's people. The church is. That's why they believe that they're, you know, that the Israel that is today in the land is, is really not a true Israel. But I can assure you that when you go to Israel, you will realize it's the true Israel of God. He's bringing these people in and God is, is preparing a tremendous thing uh, to happen. So uh, that is not the basic interpretation of this passage. To, you know, when you spiritualize something, you change the meaning and the understanding. And, and so for these Gentiles, you know, they have to try to make it work. So they said, no, the Gentiles are just going to come to Christ and His church. But that's not the basic interpretation of the passage. The, the subject of the prophecy is Israel. The subject of the prophecy is the children of Israel. God speaks to Israel as Israel. The subject of this whole chapter is Israel. It is quite significant what Paul says of this in the book of Romans chapter 11. And it makes me wonder what they do to spiritualize what Paul says in Romans 11. Because Paul is not speaking in terms to spiritualize anything about Israel. And he says in verse 15, For if they, 
uh, I'm sorry, if they're being cast away, speaking of Israel themselves, if they're being cast away or rejected as it were for a time by God, if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now that's a significant statement here. But let me read on. It says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, speaking to the church, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, or Gentiles in the church, grafted in among them, and with them become or became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree... I love the word fatness. It's a good word. Don't look at me. With them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. The root being Israel. Paul is very clear about this. So he hasn't given up on Israel. He hasn't given up on his own people. And if Paul the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hasn't given up on his own people, we should not give up on the, on the children of Israel. God is going to restore them, time and time again. As a matter of fact, this particular chapter, Isaiah 60, is one that speaks of the restoration of Israel. So Israel's life from the dead, going back to verse 15 in Romans 11, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world. In other words, they had to be cast away so that the Gentiles could now come to Jesus Christ. What will their acceptance be from, uh, but life from the dead? So Israel's life from the dead is clearly seen in Ezekiel 37. And the valley of dry bones coming to restoration and revival of a dead people. Think about that. So this replacement theology is debunked in this one chapter alone by just a couple of verses. But the next section of our text, of our text will make it even clearer. Isaiah 60 verse 4. I'm going to read a large chunk of this and then just go back and comment on a few verses. Isaiah 60 verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your, your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Boy, that's not happening today. But I can assure you that because everything else has come to pass, so will this. Let's read on. Verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. You'll find this very interesting when you realize where these lands are from. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. This is an interesting passage too. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my, on my altar. In other words, the rams are going to come on their own to the altar of sacrifice. In Jerusalem. On their own. Interesting. And I will glorify the house of my glory. I will glorify the house of my glory. 
Who are those who fly like a cloud? You know, it's interesting that I was reading a commentary uh, the other day from a, a, a Dutch uh, pastor from many, many years ago. Uh, he wrote the comment- a commentary on Isaiah back in 1923. And even in 1923, he said, the more I look at this particular verse, verse 8, who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? He says, somehow, many people in Israel are going to be taken there by airplanes. I thought, that's interesting. Because you know that a lot of the people that are living in Israel today were brought there by airplane. <laughs> Many airplanes, airlifts, to take them out of Russia, to bring them into Israel. Happened. They didn't have big airplanes in 1923, you know. Uh, Fair size, but how about today? Okay, well, forget that, you know, don't worry about that. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their roost? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me. If you remember a few months ago, we were talking about the coastlands or the islands as it were. But, but that was significant in that it was speaking of nations in general, but possibly even the, uh, the United States. Because you know a lot of people have wondered, is the United States in prophecy? Mm, well, it's possible, but just a thought. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me. That's actually hoping in the Lord. And the ships of Tarshish, and it's interesting that anything that involves Tarshish is also sometimes connected to uh, making a connection to the United States. It's a stretch, but sometimes it is. But the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. It was, it, it was ships, by the way. It, it was ships that brought the earliest uh, settlers back into Israel in the modern day, back in, in, the, uh, in the early 20th century. And then it says, To bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. Some of you may remember King Hiram of Tyre was, uh, was part of the, the team that... Uh, that uh, actually built the temple in 1 Kings 5. You can look that up later. Uh, but he wasn't, a, he, wasn't a, uh, he wasn't Hebrew. Then it says, For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. In my wrath I have struck you. In other words, I had to chastise you. Speaking to his people. You see, can you apply that to the church today? You can't. He's speaking directly and specifically to Israel. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. You see, replacement theology wants to take the blessings of God, but they don't want to take, you know, the chastisements. But you're going to have to. But that's what, that's what you know, tears this theology down. Verse 11, Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night. That man may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in possession. In procession, I'm sorry. Their kings in procession. Verse 12. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. So there are going to be certain nations that reject Messiah. They will be judged. And then verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. Now that's, that's a good picture for us to see that is yet to happen because today the only glory from Lebanon have been Hezbollah bombs and missiles into Israel. 
So this, this isn't a fantasy of the Lord. This is the truth of the Lord. It's going to happen. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the pine, and the box tree together. To beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. In a sense he's saying, you guys have made some nice temples for me. I'll show you how to make one. I'll show, I'm going to put the best in it. For my glory. And God can say that because he's God. God can say that because he's perfect. God can say these things. Because he's awesome in all of his ways. We know that there will be no peace in the Middle East. Until the Lord Jesus returns. And this passage, in fact, this whole chapter, certainly confirms that. There, there is just, there's just too much tension in the epicenter. Israel, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. There's just too much tension in the epicenter and, and continued hatred toward the people of Israel in that region to think that certain people could broker some sort of peace plan, especially with, with the enemy. And while snubbing Israel at the same time, I'm talking about something that's going on today, the last couple of days. I mean, it's going on right now through the efforts of a former U.S. president who won't listen to his own State Department. You all know who I'm talking about. Isn't it a sad thing? Talking to the enemy, Hamas, whose only desire is to destroy Israel. That is, that is their passion. Well, I'm not here to talk politics. But you see how all of this is working itself in? Getting back to our text, one of the great themes of this passage is the regathering of Israel in the land given to them by the Lord. Notice a couple of times, your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. The regathering that is taking place today in Israel is a valuable foretaste of this ultimate and complete regathering. This is just the beginnings, folks. There's still a lot of Jews that are going to come back to Israel. And it's happening every day. Regathering, remember that. Secondly, then there's the receiving. The receiving of the treasure of their people as well as the wealth of the nations. That is certainly yet to come. But there are nations that are helping Israel today. We're one of them, but the way things are, you know, we, we better be careful. We don't lose sight of our need to be there in support of, of Israel. But, but there's the receiving of the treasure here, of their people, as well as the, the wealth of the nations. Referring to the Gentiles and the abundance of the sea. That phrase that is here in our text, the abundance of the sea, the sea of nations, as it were. All to Israel in the millennial kingdom. All the wealth coming in to the, in, into the uh, uh, Jerusalem, into the, the very city of God is what I'm trying to say. What is interesting is the willingness in which this wealth is given. The willingness, much as the Egyptians willingly gave the Israelites riches when they left Egypt. Uh, look at Exodus 12 verses 35 and 36. Now you'll notice a little bit of, you know, uh, 
tension here, but it says, Now the children of Israel had, had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the uh, Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Notice, they granted them, and, and, and the, uh, the impact of that statement is they granted it willingly. In some effect it was, here, take it, get out of here. Because of all of the plagues that had come upon Israel, uh, upon Egypt. But so much wealth is going to be given that the gates of the city will need to be open continually. There in verse 11. So the gates will be open continually. Why? Because so much is going to be coming in. Uh, the mention of camels, by the way, uh, or dromedaries being the mode of transportation of, of some of this wealth, is to point out from which peoples these gifts come. <laughs> and this is another reason why we have to consider that this is not to be spiritualized. Notice the nations that are coming. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedar, or Kedar, uh, Nebaioth. All of these coming from various parts of Arabia. Now Arabia, today, Saudi Arabia, where one of the most uh, rigid forms of Islam is practice, Wahhabism. They're very much uh, enemies of Israel too. But isn't it interesting that from this region, they're going to be bringing wealth to Israel. But I want you to notice something. The interesting things are the gifts that they bear. You notice what they are. They bear gold and incense. What's what's important about this statement? They bear gold and incense. Do you notice anything missing? What are the gifts that the, uh, the Magi from the East brought at the birth of Jesus or after the birth of Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not Mighty Putty. You ever seen that Mighty Putty commercial? That guy's giving me crazy, driving me crazy. Myrrh. You know what myrrh is? Myrrh. Myrrh was a, was was a an herb that was used uh, in the preparation of uh, bodies for burial. So it was a symbol of death. Uh, myrrh speaks of death, in particular Christ's death at His first coming. When they brought these particular gifts to Jesus at His birth, there was a significance to the fact that part of his life uh, was going to be affected by death. The most important part of it affects us. If Jesus doesn't die, we have no salvation. So, at his second coming, that's his first coming. At his second coming, there's no need to bring myrrh. You know why? Because Messiah is a risen Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That we see gold and, and, and incense, but there's no need for myrrh. Jesus is risen. He's not going to die again. He's alive. And He's the glory of Israel. All of this begs the question, 
Why will the nations present such riches to Israel? Why? Well, the first thing that they, the children of Israel returning to the land and the Gentiles, uh, the first thing that they recognize is that they are bringing these riches to God. Remember, they are attracted by the glory of God in Jerusalem, in Israel. And so they are bringing their gifts to God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Who are these who fly like a cloud and look and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastland shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. Notice, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. So they have recognized that they are bringing these riches to God. That's the first thing. The second thing they recognize is that they see the work of God in Israel. You see, that's where a lot of people fall short. They stop, you know, especially those of this, this replacement theology ilk, or, or, or maybe it's the, uh, what is it, the post-tribulation uh, or post-millennial uh, uh, thought, you know, there's amillennial uh, positions and all, and I don't have time to go all about that. But they, they just don't hold to the very fact that, you know, that, that, that uh, the Scripture is literal in most cases. And, and so, people are going to see the work of God in Israel. When you go to Israel, I'm sounding like I'm taking you all with us next March. I hope I, I take many of you. But when we go to Israel, what, you, what you're going to notice is God is working in Israel. God is working in His people, even though many of them don't know it. That's okay. They don't have to know it for God to be working. Please understand that. How many times did God work on your behalf even before you even knew He was in your behalf? (laughs) So, He has glorified you, the text says. God has glorified you. People are recognizing what God has done to Israel. And so Isaiah sees ships, he sees caravans bringing people and riches to the city of Jerusalem. Those nations refusing to honor the Lord in the city of Zion will be judged, verse 12. Foreigners and kings will assist in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, proving, proving, folks, proving God's favor and compassion in contrast to his anger. I want to read from Isaiah 57, verses 16 through 18, as a reminder to you of what it says. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would fail before me in the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. What a beautiful statement. Now it makes more sense. We studied that back in Isaiah 57, but now it makes more sense. When we think of how God is rebuilding and going to rebuild Jerusalem, going to rebuild the millennial temple, and foreigners, in other words, Gentiles, just as in that, uh, that first temple that was built with the hands of Hiram, of Tyre, so shall there be a combination of Jew and Gentile in the city of God, 
building that temple because the Lord has shown mercy upon his people. And then there's the beautifying of the millennial temple with the, with the precious and the costly wood of Lebanon. We mentioned Lebanon earlier. The place where God's presence and work in history are continuously remembered. Not Lebanon, but uh, the millennial temple. The temple is where God, His presence, and His work in history are to be continuously remembered. I think that any place where we worship the Lord, any place where we gather to praise God, there is a sense of remembering what God has done for us and with us, to us, and through us, so that we might praise Him all the more when we gather in His name. We just don't sing because we have good voices. And a lot of you have good voices. Some of you have great voices. Some of you have grating voices. But they're great nonetheless because God sees the heart. You know, but when you're singing and praising God, what are you doing? You're remembering the great things that God has done for you. And you're thanking Him for those things. So think about that in eternity. In the millennial temple, first of all, the thousand year reign of Christ here before the New Jerusalem and all of that. But for a thousand years, people are going to be worshiping God, remembering one thing. Jesus dying for us. The Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. The Lamb. Man, that's, that's going to be heavy. Think about it. By the way, services by the priests, there will be priests. Read the book of Ezekiel, uh, if you will, chapters 40 through 47. That's, that's your homework for next week. Uh, about the Millennial Temple. And we wonder, someone asked a question not long ago about you know, the sacrifices in, in, in the Millennial Kingdom and all. And, I, and, and you, know, you think about that. Why is that? What is it for? services by priests and even the sacrifices in the temple and by the way if you remember the rams the rams are coming in acceptance of the sacrifice in other words nobody's bringing them they're coming by themselves to the altar that was the picture here that all creation knows that the glory of God is upon Israel but getting back to my point the priests and sacrifices in the temple will not be for atonement it is not for atonement you know why? because the atonement was once for all finished at the cross of Jesus Christ the atonement was once for all finished at the cross of Christ the willing sacrifices of the millennial temple will be for worship will be for consecration it will be possibly reenactment but most importantly remembrance Remembrance. So, still a burning issue, it might be, but the important thing is to know the atonement has already been finished. So that's not why there is uh, sacrifices in the millennial temple. But pressing on because of time, let's go on to verse 14. It says, Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate 
at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. I, I, hope that, I hope that you've kind of focused on something. The sons of those who afflicted you, speaking of Israel. There are a lot of people afflicting Israel today. Both because God has allowed it in chastisement, but also just because there are some people that just hate Israel. And want to afflict pain and punishment. Think about, think about the Holocaust, as it were. So the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who, despise, who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Notice verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many nations. There was a time when Israel was completely desolate. Nobody wanted to even go through there. And even Jerusalem. But now, look at the city. Now everybody wants it. Now the Muslims want all of it. And, and they don't even have anything in the Quran that talks about Jerusalem. Why do they want it? It's because it belongs to Israel. That's all. Bottom line. That's today. In this day. All that is turned around. And notice verse 16, You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. That comes back to all the wealth and the riches. The, the enrichment. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's the whole key to the, to the focus of the glory of God in the midst of Jerusalem. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. No nation is your Savior. No people are your saviors. I, the Lord, and I alone am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, and instead of stones, iron, I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Your government will be built upon peace and righteousness, in other words. Notice verse 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. Neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. Boy, that's happening today. And when you go to Israel, you see some hints of that. Big hints. <laughs> You're safe, but you see them. But you shall call your wall salvation and your gates praise. Think of all the various peoples that have afflicted and hated the Jewish people throughout the centuries. There is nothing new about people hating the Jews. And yet their children will one day come to Jerusalem and bow before the Lord. That is the children of the, of the oppressors, of the children of those who afflicted Israel. They will come and bow before the Lord. They will have a different mind and a different heart in the kingdom concerning Jerusalem. They will finally recognize it as the city of the Lord. And instead of an empty wasteland, Jerusalem will be made a, pe a, a place of, of prosperity and joy. It will be served and enriched by the wealth of the Gentiles. So figuratively, the milk of the Gentiles. 
Everything is going to be upgraded to the best materials. Why? Because the Lord Himself is going to bring it. Gold. He's going to bring silver. He's going to bring bronze and iron. And, 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 and where all those things, you know, at, at one time with, with a second, uh, you know, kind of secondary material, God says, no, the best. Gold, silver, bronze for, for the wood, and iron for stones. And then there will be this beautiful transformation from the violence and bloodshed of the past. If you go back to the last chapter and look at verses 6 through 8, where the Lord is, is, is speaking to them about that violence and bloodshed in their own part. You know, what the, what the, what the Jewish people did to their own people at times. He's showing this transformation from that bloodshed of the past to the glorious city whose walls are called salvation. And whose gates are called praise. That hasn't happened yet. But it's going to. You see, go back to Isaiah 26 for just a moment in verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 26 verse 1 says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls. And bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And may I say to you that that prophetic statement is for those who are both children of Israel. And Gentiles, because it says that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in, and you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Whoever it is that trusts in the Lord, I would hope that all of us in here trust in the Lord. And if we do, then we will enter in with that same peace. That God will give us that perfect peace, that perfect shalom, that perfect completeness and wholeness and perfect fulfillment. We close with with a passage now that describes how Israel will be treated by the Lord in the millennial kingdom. Notice verse 19. It says, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. Now that's not to say that there won't be a sun and there won't be a moon and there won't be stars. Though that's a picture of something that is yet to happen when you read Revelation chapters uh, 21, 22. When you read these chapters and and you see then of course the new Jerusalem and and heaven you, uh, (laughs) you, you realize it says there's no longer sun. The light is from the throne of God. But this is similar. But, but, but think about it, what it says. The sun shall no longer be your light. You won't be dependent upon the sun by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. You, you won't be dependent upon, uh, upon the moon for some sense of beauty in the night, as it were. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. I mean, if God's glory is going to be upon Israel, I mean, He's not going to turn off His glory. The batteries never run out because there are no batteries to worry about. 
It comes from within God. It is God's light. It is God's glory. It is God's effulgence. It is God's radiance that will shine throughout the millennial kingdom. The thousand year reign of God and of Christ. The Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your, and, and your God your glory. We want our God to be a glorious God. And we just can't wait till that light shines. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. Now that's dealing with their hearts. It's dealing with what they have gone through for thousands of years. Finally, they begin to see the light, so to speak. When they see the light at the end of the tunnel and they finally get there, that light never shuts off. That's the glory of God. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. You don't have to weep any longer. You don't have to weep like you wept when you were sent to Babylon or to Syria, to Assyria or, or, or the weeping that took place in the, in the mud pits of Egypt. There's no more mourning. There, there's no more crying. There's no more need for it. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Also your people shall all be righteous. Well, I'll tell you what, in the millennial kingdom, <laughs> who's going to want to do anything that's not righteous? Hearts have been changed. In a thousand years, there will be generations that will grow up that will still need to know who's sitting on the throne. That's something you'll see in the book of Revelation whenever we get there. But he says, they shall inherit the land forever. Now remember, it isn't just that little strip of land that's the size of New Jersey over there right now. But all the land that God promised, all the land that stretches all the way to the Euphrates River and down to Egypt, all the land that God promised, that's the land that they will inherit forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time when God says it's time it's time I oftentimes tell you get ready God's coming be ready it can happen at any moment things can just turn on a dime as it were but when it's time then it's time and we cannot presume upon God and say, well, you know, still a lot of things that have to happen. I'm sure the Lord's not going to come before we find out who's going to be president in 2008. Oh, hey, that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because God's in control. God knows exactly who's going to be president already. And may God have mercy on us. I say that with all, I mean, with all seriousness. May God have mercy on this nation. That's why I want on July the 2nd, when we have that 
patriotic thing, and I hope some of you choir members get here on Thursday night so we can get ready for it. It's not a matter of, of it's not a matter of exalting this nation, it's a matter of praying for this nation. And knowing that God has given us a blessed nation to preach the gospel and, and to get the word of God out. But you know what? The Bible also tells us that we need to pray for our nation. We need to do that. When the Lord says He's ready, He'll be ready. The question for us is, are we ready now for His return? Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Well, that is certainly going to happen when Israel finds itself in the presence of Almighty God and in Christ. Right now, God is saying to us, arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Which means simply this. Jesus said to you and to me, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. Let it shine. We don't live in darkness. We live in the light of the glory of Christ. Though we don't see it with our eyes, we know it to be true. Because once we were blind, but now we see Once we were in darkness, but now we're in the very light of Christ. Once we were lost, we've been found. Christ found us. Knew where we were all along. Didn't have any mystery about it. He just knew where to look. And look what he got. You guys. And me too. Let's pray.